female governor. Well, let me tell you, I am so grateful to the thousands of you in this room and around this state and around this country who have joined me on this drive to history. This is SRN News. The second aspect of Christ's generosity in relation to our salvation is this, the poverty of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. From the exalted place of riches he became poor. Paul tells us that none has ever been wealthier than Christ. None. Yet in becoming a man, Jesus became poor, and he said he did it for you. He did it for me. I've heard of extremely wealthy people being described as richer than God. (laughs) But you and I know there's no such thing, not even close. Yet Jesus gave that up for us. Wow. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're studying generosity as we work our way verse by verse through 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you can follow in your Bible, let's take a look at verse 9. Here's Pastor Steve to continue the message he began in our last broadcast. Now this morning, we're going to look at the fourth reason why we should be generous. And it is simply this, because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know this that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, I want you to understand that this is a treasured verse. It has been treasured by Christians ever since it was penned by the Apostle Paul. It is a verse that is so simple that even a little child can understand this. It is a verse that is so profound and deep that to, to actually understand it in its fullness, I think, is impossible for us. It is precious, though. It is deep because it displays the incredible love and sacrifice and generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a sense in which no matter how much you study it, you you can't possibly fathom its complete depth. And while this verse is filled with theological truths about Christ, about man, about salvation, the purpose for which Paul wrote this was actually quite practical and ethical in nature. It's, it's a practical verse. It is not an, a, a verse to set aside abstract theological truth for us to, to just chew on. It is a verse that is to motivate us to be generous. And I want to connect it for you. Look back at verse 8 again. You'll see the connection. Paul said, I am not speaking this as a command. I'm not telling you to be generous by way of dictating any, any law command to you but is proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of of your love also. The apostle told the Corinthians that he would not and could not dictate generosity because generosity is something that comes from love and, and grace and not duty and law. But just because generosity is not a legal command in Scripture does not mean that generosity is left open to us as an option. It's not. God doesn't leave it open to us as an option. You don't need a law to tell you to be generous. Why? Because you have the example of Jesus Christ. We have to be generous because we know the grace of God. You don't need a biblical law. You don't need anyone dictating generosity. All you have to do is think back 
upon the generosity of Jesus Christ. And when Paul says in verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's speaking of, of his, his giving in our salvation. He's speaking of his generosity. Grace and generosity are used in the same manner here. Jesus Christ stands, even beyond the example of the Macedonians, as the supreme model and example of what it means to be generous. The Macedonians were a great example, but limited. They were poor people who actually gave to poorer people. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. Jesus, Jesus was wealthy, and he became poor to help others. This even goes beyond the wealth of anyone you might know. Down through the ages, there have always been wealthy people who have given. Always been people who have had compassion upon the poor. But no one in history apart from Christ, no wealthy person has ever given up all their wealth to help somebody who is poor, and they became poor in the process. Wealthy people give of their wealth, and they're still wealthy. And so they give more. But Jesus Christ stands alone in all of human history as the only one who impoverished himself to make others wealthy. Nobody else has ever done that. And as someone has put it, none was richer than he, none became poorer than he. This is the gospel that he's talking about. And you know, it's very possible that Christians, or the Corinthians rather, may not have been familiar with the Macedonians' generosity until they read what what we've just read in chapter 8. They may not have known about their generosity until Paul told them about it, but they were all familiar with the generosity of Jesus Christ. That's why it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how would they know that? Well, you can't be saved without knowing that. If you know Christ, you know about his generosity. Now, you may not have thought about it in in any terms beyond the theology and saving you. You may not have thought of his example. You may not have thought of the ethical side of this, but that's all wrapped up in, in this. Every Christian knows about the grace of God. You can't be saved apart from knowledge of the grace of God. If you think that you have to work your way to heaven, then you have never experienced salvation. For by grace, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul also reiterated that in Romans chapter 11, In verse 6, when he said, but if it is by grace, meaning salvation, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace is giving. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is generosity. Every Christian knows about grace and generosity because Christ has been generous in giving us the riches of salvation. That's Paul's point. You know this. You don't need a law. You already know this. So Paul reminds the Corinthians what they already had known and experienced. And his point is this. If Jesus Christ was generous in saving you by his grace, then you need to be generous too. That's the whole point of this. If Jesus Christ sacrificed for you, and if his sacrifice cost him everything, and it did, all of his riches then how can you not sacrifice in being generous to others? That's that's exactly, in a nutshell, what Paul is saying. Now, it may very well be that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, but you may it may never have dawned upon you that there is an ethical demand, that because he was generous, you and I must be generous as well. 
And so if after everything Paul has taught us about generosity, you find in your heart that you are still reluctant to share your money in the support of the Lord's work and the Lord's people, then you need to listen very closely as Paul teaches us that Jesus Christ is the supreme example of generosity and all the details involved in that. That's the purpose of this. And Paul does this by explaining three aspects of Christ's generosity or his grace as it relates to our salvation. This is a very easy outline to follow. We're going to look at, number one, the riches of Christ. Number two, we're going to look at the poverty of Christ. And number three, we're going to look at our riches through his poverty, which is exactly what the passage Uh, how it breaks down. The first aspect of Christ's generosity that Paul mentions is, number one, the riches of Jesus Christ. He says at the beginning of verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, You understand this. In describing God's graciousness and merciful action in saving us, Paul reveals the magnitude of this grace. And he does it by telling us how Jesus Christ was rich. He was rich. He was wealthy. And the reason Paul does this is he is reminding us all that Jesus gave up for us, all that he gave up in that he gave his riches. And he wants us to grasp the overwhelming generosity of Christ in his giving. Now, the question is, what are the riches that he's referring to? It's a critical question because if you don't understand this, you really miss the point of the passage. You're not going to appreciate the extent of his grace and generosity, and you really won't understand all that he gave up. Now, it's important to realize that when Paul speaks of the riches of Christ, he is not referring in any way to his earthly riches or even, I might add, his earthly existence. That's that's irrelevant at this point. He is referring, and watch this, he is referring to his pre-existent state and his eternality as God. That is to say, how rich is Christ? Jesus Christ is as wealthy as God because he is God. That's what Paul is teaching. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is the creator of the universe, of the heavens and the earth. He is in no way any less deity than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. He is fully God. He has never stopped being God. He is the second member of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible has so many references on this that there's no way that anyone could miss this unless they want to miss this. There's no way that anyone with an open mind can read the Bible and conclude anything other than Jesus Christ is fully God. For example, John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. He was not a God. Anyone who tells you it ought to be translated, as Jehovah's Witnesses say, as a God. Let me just say, they don't, they don't know the, the Greek. They don't understand how, how the Greek language works. That's absurd, that's heretical, that's that's bad translation. He was with God, face-to-face with God the Father, and he is fully God. In Isaiah chapter 9, in that great Christmas passage we, we speak of, Isaiah referred to the Lord Jesus as the mighty God, and he said the everlasting Father, meaning that he is the originator of all. He is the source of all. He is the eternal 
1. Colossians chapter 1 is a marvelous passage. Paul tells the Colossians who had false teachers who were denying the deity of Christ in verse 15, he says, and and listen to the, the strength of these statements. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, that speaks of his prominence, his preeminence, who is not a created being at all. He is the creator. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And watch this, and for him. He didn't just create everything. He created it for himself, not for us, but for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus accepted worship. Jesus forgave sin. Only God can do that. And and I read to you before Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, about being the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, look at Christ. But there is a wonderful statement in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, where God the Father is speaking to the Son, and this is what he said, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father refers to the Son as God. So many statements in the Bible affirm and teach the deity of Christ. And he didn't just exist before. He was always in existence. There was never a time that Jesus Christ didn't exist. He is eternal. He said before, Abraham was what? I am. I am. Jesus is the great I am. He is the one at the burning bush who said to Moses, I am that I am. So the riches that Christ possessed and and enjoyed in his pre-incarnate state, meaning the state before becoming a man, refers to his riches while existing in the form of God in the sense that he outwardly radiated the glory of God. That's what Paul is referring to. In fact, Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 17 In his high priestly prayer, he said to the Father in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Return me to that state of glory because I don't experience that now. I want to be returned to that state of glory. And he was. Form of God. So the riches refer, the riches refer to existing in the form of God before becoming a man. The riches also refer to all that he owns and possesses as God, which would, which would mean his creation, his majesty, his honor, all power, all authority, all sovereignty, and everything else that goes with that. In other words, everything you can think of belongs to Jesus Christ as creator and as owner. Everything. In John 1 verse 3, John tells us all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I don't know how else you can say it in any clearer manner. He owns everything. You think of riches, he's got it. We actually own nothing. He has it all. And you see what Paul wants us to see? Paul wants to establish in our thinking that no one has ever been as rich as Jesus Christ. He owns it all. There isn't anything in the universe that doesn't belong to him. But the wonderful truth about his his generous grace is this. 
He gave it all up, all of it. And that's what Paul goes on to tell us as he explains the unfolding truth about Christ's generosity in relation to our salvation. Number one, the riches of Jesus Christ. All, everything, existing in the form of God. Secondly, the second aspect of Christ's generosity in relation to our salvation is this, the poverty of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. From the exalted place of riches, he became poor. Paul tells us that none has ever been wealthier than Christ. None. Yet in becoming a man, Jesus became poor, and he said he did it for you. He did it for me. Now, I want to make sure that we all understand what Paul is really saying here by Christ becoming poor, because there have been some who have used this verse to teach that since Jesus was poor and homeless, then it would be wrong for any of his followers to have anything more than the bare necessities of life. You think, oh, that was taught by heretics, right? Not, No, not just heretics. There have been some very competent theologians who have taught that. None other than John Calvin himself in his commentary on 2 Corinthians holds to this. St. Augustine held to this. And in fact, I have a, I have a dear friend who has said something like this to, to me. How can you have anything when, when we need to give so much for missions? I don't believe a, a Christian should have any luxuries. So this is a, a popular popular view that we sort of ought to all take a vow of poverty and uh, if we're really dedicated to Christ, we'll have no luxuries and no comforts. We just live an austere, materialistically simple lifestyle, and we would shun anything beyond our basic needs as worldly. I need to tell you this, that those who, who hold to this, the advocates of poverty, most of the time are quite judgmental, quite judgmental and self-righteous towards believers who do have luxuries. They look down upon those who, who do, and they tend to be proud. And uh, they're proud of what? Proud of their own frugality. Frugality then becomes a mark of spirituality. Yet the Bible doesn't say anything like that. This verse isn't talking about that. It's important that we do understand what Paul meant. What, what did he mean in Jesus becoming poor? Paul says, yet for your sake, he became poor. I want you to understand Jesus did not live at the level of poverty. Jesus would not have been considered in his day even a poor person. He was not on the lowest economic ladder of his society. Now, how do we know this? And, I, and I'm sure many of you have been taught that Jesus was homeless and, and poor, and that, that's not true. We do know he was not born into a wealthy family, but the biblical evidence is that he was raised in more of what we would call a middle-class setting. Why do I say that? Well, his earthly father, Joseph, had a construction business. And the word for carpenter in the Greek is more, more than just a carpenter who worked with wood. It really means builder. And more than likely, Joseph worked with stones more than he did wood. If you've ever been to Israel, you can't go anywhere without stones. One Bible teacher clarified the family's economic situation by pointing this out. According to historians, construction was flourishing in and around Nazareth of Galilee, Jesus' hometown. 
That was due to Roman expansion in the area's location near the major east, west, north, south trade routes of that day. So it's likely that Joseph was a good carpenter who took advantage of the many construction opportunities around Nazareth and, with Jesus' help, built a thriving business. And Jesus, as the firstborn son, would have inherited the family business after Joseph died. Now, I know that someone's going to think then, in fact, many may think then, then why was he born in a lowly manger? If he wasn't so poor, why, why be born in a lowly manger? Well, the answer to that is that it had more to do with the overcrowded conditions in Bethlehem at the time of the census than with the financial status of Joseph and Mary. It said they had, there was no room for them in the inn. It didn't say they didn't have enough money to pay for an inn. And then someone may say, but wait a minute, didn't Jesus say that foxes have, have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Yes, he did say that. Well, doesn't that indicate then he was essentially homeless? No, it doesn't indicate that at all. What it does indicate is that after he began his itinerant ministry, when he left his home in Nazareth, Christ was dependent upon the, the love and the care and the support of his followers to provide for his needs. doesn't mean he didn't have a home in Nazareth, he left that home and he traveled around and others opened their homes to him, such as his good friend Lazarus with his sisters Mary and Martha. He just enjoyed the hospitality of, of many friends. This is not a whole lot different than in third world countries of traveling itinerant missionaries and preachers and evangelists today. They're just dependent upon others. This is because Christ went into the ministry. He no longer practiced being a carpenter. And you also want to do this. You want to keep in mind that Jesus and his followers certainly had enough surplus money to provide for the needs of others. How do we know that? Well, let's look. Let's turn to John chapter 12. Two things stand out in this passage in John chapter 12 and actually John chapter 13. I want you to see John chapter 12, beginning at verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Listen, first of all, understand that they had a money box. Judas was the treasurer. He used to take money out of it, which means they had money in it. Jesus wasn't a beggar. Jesus had money. People supported him. But watch this. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may uh, keep it for the day of my burial. Now watch this. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus made a distinction between the poor and himself. He was not in that classification. He didn't put himself in that category. He said, you always have the poor, and you can give to the poor at any time, but you can't do this for me. In essence, saying that he was not considered the poor. Now, at this point, you might be a little confused. The Bible says Jesus became poor for us, Yet he seemed to have sufficient funds to give to the poor. So how was he poor? We'll have to get to that on the next verse by verse. Our time for today is running out. Thanks for listening. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more about Lakeside, call the office at 727-441-1714. 
or go online to lakesidechapel.com. The phone number again is 727-441-1714 or go to lakesidechapel.com. One other website I'd like you to know about is versebyverseradio.org. That's where you can find all of our previous broadcasts and stream or download them at no cost. We also have giving information there if the Lord is blessing you through these Bible studies and you'd like to give to help support them. Click on the giving link to discover how easily and securely you can give through our website. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. How do we reconcile 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, He became poor, with Jesus' comment to Judas in John 12 that they would always have the poor, but they wouldn't always have Jesus among them. Jesus didn't seem to think of himself as impoverished. So in what way did he become poor? Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will help us resolve that, as well as show us how we benefit from Jesus' poverty. He will conclude this fifth. We are here to give you strength between... 